Welcome to Waste Not and Feed the Need, the podcast for Los Fishes Family Kitchen. My name is Mauricio Cordova Flores, and I'm here with our CEO, Gisela Boucher. Good morning, Gisela. Good morning, Mauricio. It's so good to be here. Welcome. Thank you for uh, spending a, li- a little bit of your time with us. We really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself. And, uh, you know, we're here today to talk about Lows and Fishes and who we are, uh, what have we been doing, and maybe where we're going to go. So please uh, jump in. Sure. I'll give you the sh- short version of my background. Um, I've spent most of my career in the nonprofit sector, primarily in organizational development and management. A lot of fundraising, but primarily in developing organizations that are looking to grow and to strategically develop themselves to their next stages. Um, I've also spent about the past 15 years prior to my coming to Loaves and Fishes uh, involved with hunger relief activities. So when the opportunity came to be involved in hunger relief on the local level of where I've lived for the last 30 years, uh, I jumped at the opportunity. one of the nice things about uh, Loaves and Fishes is the fact that we really are a very or- organically uh, developed organization. We were created back in 1980 because members of the community saw a need and they wanted to do something very direct and very hands-on in order to try to address that need that they saw growing in their community. So what started in 1980 with that first meal which fed 11 adults and 15 children has fast forward 42 years grown into the largest uh, food uh, preparation uh, prepared food and uh, distribution organization in the Bay Area. Uh, We've gone from those first 26 meals to 7,500 meals a day. We'll end this fiscal year at 1.8 million meals, which is about 300% more than we were providing uh, just shy of three years ago. So you can see where the trajectory is going. Uh, And what it did is it forced us to look at how we were doing what we were doing, refine what we were doing very well, and also identifying ways for us to do more to put food out into the community for the folks who needed it the most. And that's how we ended up getting involved in food recovery efforts. Thank you. That's... uh it's a, it's, I, every time I listen to it, I still get mesmerized about how much we have grown and, and, and done things here. Uh, I, I think the food recovery part is a uh, integral part of our future because there's going to be a lot of uh, more food available that is already prepared. So why you know cook something that's already been cooked? So you just got to find better ways to re- recover it. So uh, what are your thoughts about, you know, uh, that part of the growth uh, with us and now SB 1383, which is the law that passed in 2015, that it will be uh, sort of a mandate of reduction of food going into landfills and making more food available for human consumption. What are your thoughts about uh, loaves and fishes future with that and how it will affect us? Well, you know, it's interesting because when we first started having conversations, you and I, about how we wanted to uh, extend our reach out into the community, um, the whole issue of food recovery was still pretty nascent. There was, Although there were a lot of folks who would say that they've been involved in food recovery and in the redistribution of, of food for many, many years, but a coordinated, targeted effort 
such as SB 1383, only came about since 2015. And of course, not surprisingly, California led the way. Um, so, you know, we happen to be at a great tipping point for us as an organization. Uh, we had pretty much maxed out our current kitchen. That's another story uh, in terms of prepared meals uh, of what we could produce without going and, and, and creating an entirely uh, second uh, group of, of employees, a second shift, as it were, uh, in order to keep pace. Uh, the notion, uh, we took a really hard look at um, food recovery and when the a la carte program uh, was developed and we brought it into our portfolio of services, it just made sense um, to be able to redirect food that was uh, safely held but was ending up in compost and landfills as opposed to our being able to get it out into the community to folks who needed it, folks who would otherwise go to bed hungry. And when you think of, and I think about this just about every day, that one out of every three of the folks that we serve are children. And, you know, there's just no reason for it because food, food is not a luxury. It's the great leveler. We all need it doesn't care what your zip code is, <laughs> you know. Uh, it's just something that we all need in order to be at our best, whether it's as an, a productive adult or a child in school trying to succeed academically. So the notion that we could be part of this process that could get uh, food out to folks who need it and at the same time do something that's environmentally sound just, just made a whole lot of sense to us. And that's why we went down the road of integrating a la carte into our portfolio of services. And boy, what a difference it's made. Uh, when a la carte first uh, launched in 2018 and then became part of our portfolio in uh, mid-2019, since that time, we have redirected over um, 1.3 million, I believe it is, 1.3 million pounds. That's over a million meals yeah. from going into the landfills. And at the same time, we also reduce greenhouse gas emissions by all over 1,400 metric tons. Now, when you think about the fact that we, as a, as a small organization, we have 23 employees, mm -hmm. you know, and... Uh, so we're small but mighty, uh, but the fact remains that if an, if an organization of our size can have that kind of an impact, imagine the lift environmentally that can be made if we're all doing our part to, to be really effective in, in implementing SB 1383 across the state and hopefully across the country. You know, uh, that is uh, I, a, one of the fun parts, I guess, we living in California has a lot of good things and bad things, right? But I think being a leader on a lot of these uh, uh, type of uh, issues, as it comes to the environment and everything else, you know, I, that's one of the reasons I love to be here and have the ability to work with a lot of great people and, and be able to move some of these things forward. And, uh, you know, we, we grown a lot because of that. And I think last year we were uh, almost 50% of the food we distributed was from food recovery. Mm -hmm. And we saw that growing, and we see ourselves, I think, growing in that sense. Uh, but what are the, what do you think are some of the obstacles that you foreseen? Some of the things that might be harder to overcome as we move forward to uh, to a little more food recovery uh, 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 
focus to be able to you know continue feeding uh, our most needed uh, needed uh, neighbors but also helping the environment in the process well i think one of the things we have to do is be very realistic in in recognizing that a lot of effort has already gone into redistributing meals and redirecting food away from the landfills uh, SB 1383 did not just manifest itself out of nothing. There were a lot of organizations, there were a lot of entities, restaurants, corporations that were already doing some level of um, redirection. So I think we have to be realistic and, and, and understand that, that while there is still food to be redirected, it's not this huge quantity that's just waiting for us to come and rescue it and get it back out into to the community. Is there food that can still be redirected? Absolutely. Do we want to be the ones to help make that possible for a corporation or for a restaurant? Absolutely. But we also need to be realistic that in order to do that and do it effectively and do it most importantly safely, there are resources that are involved. That means getting more uh, temperature controlled trucks. That means making sure that the trucks that we use are environmentally sound themselves. It's a staffing issue. Um, we need to also recognize that there are costs involved in doing this. Like anything, doing things the right way are always more expensive than doing things per status quo oftentimes. So it's it's also understanding that it's it's a worthwhile investment in the long run if it means that we're doing more for the environment at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, that extends the life of, of, uh, of our world for all of us. Yeah. So that's the value add for us and for future generations. And and frankly, you know, and at its most basic, it's just the right thing to do. Sure. You know, uh, talking, you, were, you mentioned something earlier about the staffing part and the cost of this. And there's a lot of, uh, I don't want to call it myth, but uh, misconceptions of how nonprofits should operate or not operate. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, we do have a lot of volunteers that provide a lot of the great time for us. Not every situation. Uh, calls for a volunteer could be for a volunteer. I know we, uh, Los Officials has huge uh, trucks that are big, they're very expensive, they require, you know, different type of driving skill. Uh, some of the operation has a, a set schedule, systematic. Uh, there's uh, background checks that might need to be taken into consideration to go into facilities and so forth. Can you, I mean, can I sure. tell us why would, you know, a, what is, you know, one of the, maybe the misconceptions or what, maybe something the folks would need to kind of just understand out there that about the volunteer part and how it's a fit uh, and the right times on a nonprofit because you cannot run on volunteers mm -hmm. alone. And they think, a lot of people think, well, all should be done by volunteers, right? And we know that's not the reality. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of sure. help us a little bit on that one? Because it's something that comes up quite often when you're talking to folks and they're asking you about, you know, well, you should just get more volunteers. Right. Well, first and foremost, uh, one of our greatest blessings are our volunteers. We have about 5,000 of those folks every year. Although that number did go down to zero during the pandemic and has, 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 has come almost all entirely back, thank God. Uh, but they are truly what helps us extend our reach. They, they volunteer at our meal service sites. They help, uh, help us in packaging hygiene kits, in working in our organic garden, uh, in um, putting together bag lunches that also go out on our trucks along with the hot and prepared mm -hmm. meals. Um, so what we do, we couldn't do without them. 
But the reality is twofold. One, the nonprofit sector is the second largest employer in the United States after the U.S. government. Yep. Can you imagine what would happen if the entire nonprofit sector went away? <laughs> I, I, the dead silence is the fact of the matter is it would be devastating. Yes. Because many of the things that the nonprofit sector addresses are those issues and concerns that either the private sector can't mm -hmm. or the government sector won't Correct. address. So we fill a very important void mm -hmm. in service delivery out to the greater community. Having said that, there seems to be this lingering, and as somebody who's been in this field for a <clears throat> very long time, <laughs> um, this lingering myth that somehow the nonprofit sector isn't, isn't quite as robust when it comes to how they manage their operations. Let me, let me dispel you of that misconception because as stewards of donor dollars, whether that's from the government, from corporations, foundations, or individuals, um, the, the reality is that uh, we are actually under greater scrutiny uh, how we use not only those donor dollars, but how we deliver our services. We are a business just like any other business. We have, we have payroll, we have overhead, we have fuel issues, we have maintenance issues, all of the kinds of things that you'll find in any private um, company. But the fact of the matter is we're often viewed as somehow needing to either utilize more volunteers for those particular elements uh, than other than other companies, and the fact of the matter is, there are just some jobs that absolutely have to be done by paid, trained staff. The other misconception is that working in the nonprofit sector um, is not competitive, and that's that's I was a big one. Going to ask you about that because yeah. those are the things that some folks feel that if you're working in a nonprofit, you should be willing to work for half of what somebody will make in the private sector, or maybe right. have no benefits, uh, you know, that kind of thing. You should be paying out of your own pocket for right. maybe your gas expense or phone or something, right? right? And that's something that... That absolutely cannot Sorry. be, yeah. that, that cannot be a misconception that is allowed to continue. Mm -hmm. Because the fact of the matter is, we are competitive. We actually had one of our board members who works for a very large national uh, food services company uh, give us a, a sense of what they are paying their staff across the country. And frankly, we are more than competitive. And I'm happy for that, mainly because for us, it's really important that we do all that we can, not only to attract good talent, but to retain good talent. Mm -hmm. And that means making sure that they are paid a, a fair and decent wage, that they do receive benefits. We pay 100% of our employees' benefits. That's an important value of ours because mm -hmm. it's another way of saying to our employees that we value having you here as part of the Loaves and Fishes family. Um, but these are also all business costs. Correct. We have the insurance. We have, you know, we also have to avoid liability wherever possible, which is why some of those positions can't be filled by volunteers. We can't just say, hey, yeah, come on, bring your car. We'll load you up and take you out because food safety is paramount. We have to hold those meals, whether we prepare them ourselves or we recover them through our a la carte program, we have to keep them safe until we put them in the hands of the guests that we serve throughout the community. So there are just certain things that we absolutely must do and there are costs associated with it. I have another question for you <coughs> that I don't think you were 
you were going to be prepared for. And I was thinking about it a minute ago, we were talking about myths and misconceptions about nonprofits. And some of them is the, and I had a, when uh, we were at a conference in Minneapolis uh, about a month and a half ago, talking about uh, the standards that are set on nonprofits to be able to operate. You know, you're only allowed X amount of money for administration, X amount of money yep. for fundraising, yep. and so forth. And a yep. big conversation came up about it should be more based on outcomes. Hey, you're gonna give me a million dollars to deliver, I'm gonna make an example here, uh, audience. He's uh, making it up, he's yes. just making it I'm up. I'm making it as I go here, a uh, <laughs> million dollars to deliver, you know, uh, 250,000 meals, as an example. And, but that might, you might need to move your money around to where Maybe you need to spend a little bit more money on admin or other things to make it work. But unfortunately, because we're constrained on a, a uh, template that only allows you to do X and Y for different uh, parts of the organization where, yes, most of the money should be going to programs. I agree with that on that completely. But sometimes it makes sense to it would make sense to move that around and that's something that I think needs to be also kind of worked and that's a bigger problem because a lot of these uh, uh, grants or information comes down from the federal government state governments as safeguards to avoid people misusing the money and I'm, I'm all, all for that mm-hmm. but what are your thoughts on, on maybe eventually working within the nonprofit uh, industry and the culture to to be able to go into more of an outcomes mm-hmm. type of uh, uh, driven grant uh, situation type of thing well you know it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, with a lot of the groups that I spend a lot of time doing uh, networking and advocacy with, um, you hear more and more these days of of something called trust-based philanthropy, uh, which is just another way of saying uh, we understand that you are you are going to do perform this deliverable, whether it's your 250,000 meals, we're giving you a million dollars. We know that you are delivering, if you deliver those 250,000 meals, then we know that you're doing everything that needs to be done in order for you to meet that objective. And that, and that will be what drives our continuing to support you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not necessarily our job to come in and stand over your shoulder and say, well, how are you parsing that out? You know, are you making sure that 90% of your funding goes to direct services and only 10% goes to management and fundraising? I will tell you that as, as, a, as an organization, that's what I have my eyes on mm-hmm. a lot because just because it's, again, the right thing to do to make sure that you put back out into the community as much as possible. But there is the cost of doing business. Now, uh, unfortunately, there have been cases where rather large organizations uh, have had some issues, let's say, in maintaining a a fair balance between their deliverables and their costs. Um, And I I don't have a problem with saying, you know, you have to have a certain range that you need to stay within in order to make sure that we are maximizing our donor dollar uh, in terms of providing those services back out into Mm -hmm. the community. But when that becomes such a constraint that you can't grow as an organization or you can't do more because you are hamstrung by that, that's where uh, nonprofit organizations get creative. And by creative, this is what I mean, and I want to make sure you all understand this. <laughs> by creative, it's, that's where you make sure that the funding that you obtain 
for your administration, for your costs, your overhead, comes from your general operating donation dollars. So those are donations, those are grants from um, corporations, from foundations, from individuals who have perhaps a donor advised fund who recognize the cost of doing business. And they give you a general operating grant because what they're saying is we know there's that cost, we know that you will manage to that, mm -hmm. and that you, what we want you to drive to is the deliverable of keeping pace with the need in the community. So that's what I mean by that. Uh, general operating funding is becoming more and more uh, the, the uh, approach that funders are using because they are recognizing, using this notion of trust-based philanthropy, that you're a business. You're, you're doing what you need to do in order to get your services mm -hmm. out the door. Unlike a private company which may manufacture a product, at the end of their year, they base their success on how much product they've moved. Yeah. Uh, in the nonprofit sector, we base our success on the amount of services we provide based on what it is that we do. In our case, it's based on the number of meals we put back out into the community to serve the families, the children, the seniors, the veterans, mm -hmm. the people with disabilities, all who depend on us for that kind of support. So there's this move uh, into trust-based philanthropy that we're seeing more and more, and I think it just makes a lot of sense. But it also comes with time and developing those relationships and establishing those relationships with, relationships with funders who have a better understanding of what it is you're doing and how you're doing it. And that is incumbent then on the nonprofit organization to make sure that people understand this is our process, this is why we do what we do. This is why we have temperature control trucks for our meals. This is why we have paid staff who are all serve safe certified at managing those trucks mm -hmm. and, and, and running the routes. Here is where we use volunteers as appropriate. The more people understand the how of what we do and not just the why mm -hmm. of what we do, the more <laughs> likely we are to have a more meaningful conversation around a trust-based approach to yeah. delivering services. Thank you. That is, uh, like I said, something that... But I have no opinion on this matter. No, of course not. No, we noticed <laughs> that, uh, you know, you, you really uh, haven't thought much about this problem. Uh, and I call it a problem because impediment, it's an impediment for a lot of nonprofits to really, like you mentioned earlier, grow and, and kind of get move their emissions forward uh, because they're constrained with some of the uh, elements that we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, something that is going to be a long process to change because, uh, like I mentioned earlier, has to do with government regulations, uh, cultural uh, thinking uh, of uh, how nonprofits should be governed, and everything else. So that will be an ongoing conversation, and I'm sure there'll be other more uh, uh, winded opinions about it. And uh, I heard some many very interesting changing topics. To one thing that I think would be fun for our guests to talk about is something that is very exciting that is just <laughs> happening, and uh, which also will give Los and Fishes the ability to to really move that needle in the future and grow and be able to do many more different things and different types of food recovery and everything else. So Gisela, tell us about this fantastic kitchen and culinary institute that we broke ground uh, about a week ago and hopefully we'll get to see in about 10 months. I'm so excited. Uh, it's been a long time coming. Um, we have had the, the great good fortune to have the use of two commercial kitchens down in Morgan Hill, California that has enabled us to be able to 
that we have that we have used uh, down in Morgan Hill, California, that has enabled us to uh, provide the meals uh, up to this point. But it became apparent um, that if the pandemic did anything for us. Unfortunately, it accelerated our strategic plan by two years. We always knew that we'd probably be at about 1.8 million or 2 million meals a year by 2024, 2025. Unfortunate pandemic, we, we we're seeing those numbers now in 2022. Um, so uh, we had in our strategic plan uh, the goal to build a second kitchen, a more centralized commercial kitchen in San Jose, California, which would allow us to extend our reach even further. Uh, we would still, of course, retain our kitchens down uh, and the use of the kitchens down in Morgan Hill because that need doesn't go away. Uh, it just it just means we're having we're, we're trying to find a way to pull our services even further out. Um, so what started as part of our strategic plan that we would try and have a new kitchen built and a culinary institute established by 2024 also got accelerated. <laughs> we had to make a conscious decision in the middle of the pandemic that we had to move this forward. So what was going to be a three to five year fundraising campaign turned into a two year panic campaign for Gisela uh, to raise the money to uh, enable us to convert the building that we own uh, uh, in San Jose into um, uh, a combination of our business offices as well as a new commercial kitchen which as you alluded to, uh, Mauricio, we uh, broke ground last week. Um, it will be 6,000 square feet, including our warehousing and receiving. And the, the, the wonderful thing about it is that we have, were able to not only get this off the ground two years in advance, uh, but we were also able to get the, the, start laying the foundation for our culinary institute. So the whole goal is to, in addition to be able, uh, being able to provide more meals mm -hmm. to the folks in the community who need it, both here in, in San Mateo County and further beyond, uh, but it was also to be able to say, here we have an opportunity because here we have this wonderful resource that after we're done using it to get our meals prepared and out the door, would basically lay empty. Uh, there wouldn't be anybody in there. So why not provide it as a resource uh, out into the community and create a training opportunity for folks who are looking to try and, and change the shape of their circumstances and get into hospitality or culinary arts in order to find gainful employment, of which is in our valley is a huge need. Yeah. You know, so uh, while we are in the midst of now building this new kitchen, we are also working with partners in order to create this culinary institute, which will be able to have both class classroom and hands-on and out in the field experience for uh, those folks who want to go through the training, uh, leading to employment uh, in uh, the hospitality industry. Uh, so it just made a lot of sense to round out what we are already serving in terms of providing meals and now creating opportunities for employment and, and, and being able to uh, support and hopefully re-energize the sector, the hospitality sector as a whole because it just, it was one more element that we needed to integrate uh, into the services that we provide out into the community. So we're very excited. Nice, that's, uh, I know, it's, I'm, I'm, you know, so excited to think about what all the opportunities are gonna bring to us and the ones that we don't know about yet right. that it's gonna offer in that. Uh, 
Question, is the anybody that is interested out there to be part of this, to make a donation, to kind of jump in the bandwagon of it, still available? Is something that could be done still? Absolutely, absolutely. While we have raised the funds for the kitchen, we still have funds that we need to raise for the building overall because obviously an older building has to be brought up to code. So there are some other costs that are associated with that. So, so we are continuing to receive donations. They can go to loavesfishes.org and make a donation online. Mm -hmm. They can contact us directly and we can facilitate a gift. You know, you may have a you know, donor advice fund where you're thinking you know, where you'd like to put your donor dollars. For every $2.50 that we receive, that's an all-in number for us to provide a healthy, nutritious meal that meets near as, as possible to 100% of the nutritional needs for the guests that we serve, which is really important to us because for the majority of the folks that we serve in the community, that one meal a day is the only meal a day. So we know we have that one shot to do it right. Mm -hmm. And as important as, as important as it is for us to have those meals be nutritious, we also want them to be flavorful. Our chefs work really hard to make sure that uh, they put out meals that we would be happy to put on our own tables uh, because we know we all, you know, everybody eats with their eyes first. So we want to make sure that that's also in there. And not just because... Um, we want them to, to be tasty, to look good, to be nutritious, but it's also another way that we show respect for the folks who are going through situations, for many of them not of their own making. For some folks, they're dealing with multiple issues. If we can take this one issue out of the equation, mm -hmm. it allows them to focus their attention on those other issues that might also help if they get those results, change the trajectory of their lives. So it becomes very important to us. And this Culinary Institute is one more tool in the toolkit for us to be effective in our service delivery out to the community. Like you say, uh, when nothing can start until what? Nothing can get really get started until hunger is completely stopped. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that touches what we're trying to accomplish and, and doing out there. We do want to, you know, for everything we do for or to be able to, to get all these meals out to the community, we definitely want to thank folks like Second Harvest of Silicon Valley, which is one of our greatest partners, provides a lot of the food that we uh, cook and distribute. Also... Our uh, two major partners as it comes to food recovery, that'll be Meta, uh, also known as Facebook. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. And their culinary uh, uh, partners, Flagship and Imagination, they're fantastic. Thank you so much for everything they do for us. And of course... Uh, and thank you, Cal EPA, for yes. the grant that allows us to have this <laughs> podcast. So we are able to not only get the word out about what we do, but you'll be hearing a lot more, I know, because I've seen the list, of the other guests who are going to tell you all about the work that is going on in uh, the state of California around the issues around SB 1383 and food recovery and hunger relief. Thank you, Gisela. Yes, the next episodes are coming. We're going to have somebody from the food bank, Silicon Valley, uh, Patty Iyer, which is a food recovery slash food waste uh, reduction guru uh, here in the Bay Area and some other other uh, uh, folks that we're, we're lining up for our next episodes. I want to thank our guest, Gisela Boucher, for being here with us today, taking some of her precious time to, uh, you know, uh, 
educate us and t- tell us all this about this great stuff going on. Uh, any last words, Gisela? Can we talk about Maynard? Is sure, we, we, yeah, I almost forgot. <laughs> we, Los Avigios does own a biodigester by a company called uh, Harp Renewables. Harp Renewables, thank you, is an Irish company. Uh, and uh, Gisela, tell us a little bit of why you're so excited about this biodigester. I love this biodigester. I named him um, Maynard because I like to name <laughs> things. Uh, because what Maynard does for us is something that I thought was always very uh, important and uh, it enables us to, again, close the loop. Um, you know, we work so hard in food recovery to divert food from landfills and composting. Maynard, as this aerobic biodigester, uh, enables us to take any food that um, is left that we cannot utilize either in our kitchen or that we cannot distribute out into the community and, and convert it into um, fertilizer, I guess, compost. Uh, the, the, the wonderful thing about it is that uh, whereas, you know, for those of you who are into gardening at all, you know that when you do uh, traditional composting, it can take upwards of a month for you to get any usable material. Maynard produces it within 24 hours. And that gives us several hundred pounds of usable material that we can then uh, get out to the farmers who support us, to some of our partners who are also involved in um, not only in food distribution, but in food recovery. Uh, and anybody who is interested in, in utilizing this wonderful nutrient-dense material um, to help you know make things grow better in their gardens, we are giving it away. Uh, because again, it what it does is it closes the loop that we become Become, uh, truly zero food waste. In fact, it's made us the first nonprofit in the country that is uh, truly food, zero food waste utilizing this aerobic biodigester. So I'm very excited. <laughs> and you can tell she doesn't have an opinion about that either. So now we're very proud of some of the, uh, a lot of the, not some, but a lot of the things we've been able to accomplish. Yes. And there's, of course, probably many more coming in the future, but uh, we're very blessed to be able to work at a and fishes and have the opportunity to do some of the things that we're doing, I think, right? I think so. And uh, so with that said, I'm going to, again, one more time, uh, is there anything that I forgot this nope, time? Nope. All right. <laughs> we're, uh, you know, thank you again, Gisela, for being here with us today. Uh, it was always a pleasure uh, listening to you and learning from you. Uh, and we'll be talking again. So until next time, ciao.